Hey church, Pastor Adam here, and I want to say thank you so much for stopping by to join us for church online today. And and while we are super stoked that you're hanging out with us this morning, we do want to remind you that really this is just supplemental. And man, it just cannot replace the local church in your life. And so look, we hope that you are encouraged and and challenged and shaped by today's message that's being preached. Uh, But but also, we don't want to be your substitute. Uh, for the local church body that you should be involved in. We really do believe that the local church is God's plan A in reaching the world. So with that being said, please come hang out with us in person uh, one Sunday. If you're in Paducah in the area, come hang out with us to get some rest or find a local Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching church that you can get plugged in and connected to. Uh, Jesus loves the church and and we love Jesus and, and we believe that we can better serve uh, Jesus, if we love his church well. So, welcome to rest. Good morning, Rest Church! Let's just give it up for the worship team this morning because they straight opened the door to heaven today. Yeah. My name's Cody. I'm one of the pastors here at Rest Church, and we're so excited that you're here today. Um, because this is Resurrection Sunday, and the tomb is empty. Amen? And so, if you're a first-time guest with us, um, if you're wondering where do we fall on the spectrum, we don't fit your spectrum, okay? We're, we're weird, quirky people, which means when we, when we set through the sermon, there's going to be times I'm going to yell at you, okay? Right? Amen? Right, right. And then there's going to be times I'm going to talk real soft to you and tender, and during both times, my expectation of you is that you say, amen, get me preacher, step on my toes, let me have it. Can we, can we make that commitment together? Yeah, yeah. And, and for my Rest Church folks, today will be an abbreviated message of Cody's normal time. Yeah. We're not getting 60 minutes today. No, some people are sad. Some people are sad. In 1950, Kurt Ritter... Uh, Rick Ritter, um, a professor at Johns Hopkins, conducted a now famous uh, psychology experiment uh, involving drowning rats. And I know that's heinous and, and, and you, no animal should suffer. This is 1950s, a different time. But in this particular experiment, there are things that we can glean from, that we can learn from. In the experiment, um, uh, Dr. Ritter, uh, Richter placed rats into a jar of water and observed their behavior as how that they responded. And there were two different groups of rats. He, he had domesticated rats and he had wild rats. And the first thought, the initial hypothesis was that the, that the, um, uh, the, the wild rats would fare much better than the domesticated rats. Because if you've ever seen videos in New York City before, wild rats are crazy. They're ravenous creatures. They basically take over anything they get close to. And so they hypothesized that the wild rats would last significantly longer in the glass jar versus that of the domesticated rats. And so then they took both groups and they started putting the rats one by one in the water. And what 
what they quickly found is that the, the domesticated rats were far superior in the length of the amount of time that they could last in the jar of water versus that of the wild rats. In fact, the, the, so much so that the wild rats lasted on average around 17 minutes versus their counterparts of the domesticated rats would last anywhere from 32 to 40 hours. Humongous difference. After seeing the initial results, what they started to do is they introduced a new variable into the study. And this new particular variable that they introduced into the study was as the wild rats would come to the place where they were ready to succumb to their weakness in the water, they would pull the rat out, they would dry it off, and they would hold it in their hand. They would then, as after a period of time, they would let that rat recover. They would take the rat and they would stick it back in the water. What they found was astounding. And it is still used today in the field of psychology. That after just being held for that short amount of time and then being stuck back in the jar of water, those rats lasted on average over 40 hours. 40 hours. What they surmised or what they've came to this conclusion is that uh, uh, psychologists have attributed their newly found longevity was tied to the fact that they had hope of a rescue. That they had experienced a rescue before and because they had been held that they now had hope. How many of you need some hope today? How many of you came into this place and you say, man, pastor, I have been getting the mess beat out of me. Life's waves are pounding on my lighthouse every single day. You're in a safe place. Is that you? Can I get an amen? Can I get a, let me hear it. All right, there we go. There we go. So this morning, we're going to read from 1 Peter chapter number 1, and we're going to read verses 3 through 5. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, and it's just a couple short verses, and then we're going to exposit those verses, and then we're going to talk about kind of some life application attached to what's going on in the Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Here it is. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Church, let's pray. Father, we come to you today on this great Resurrection Sunday first to say thank you. Thank you for your death and for your resurrection. Thank you for the significance that it brings to us in our walk. Thank you that we have a living hope today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a little context to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, he's writing to the churches in Asia Minor. And in this particular time, the Roman Empire is under one of the most ruthless leaders of all of the emperors that ever was in the existence of Rome 
and the church's existence. And his name was Nero. And if you've been around Rest Church, you've heard me tell stories of what Nero would do to Christians. He would actually tar them and light them on fire to be the candlesticks for his parties when he would throw drunken, crazy, ravenous parties. And this man hated, hated Christ. And he hated the Christians especially. And so Peter is writing under this period of time, under Nero, and he's saying to the church, essentially, who's facing all of these persecutions, hold fast, you have a living hope. Hold fast, you have a living hope. And so the purpose of this letter is to encourage them to endure the suffering and persecution by submitting their lives completely to Christ. Peter opens with this triune sort of blessing of sorts, praising God the Father, saying that he, the Father, is the source of our mercy. It was the Father who, through his mercy, raised Jesus from the dead, as we see in 1 Corinthians 6, 14. Here's what it says. And God, theos in the Greek, and God raised the Lord, kiros, raised him. So we see the Trinity, two parts. God the Father raises Jesus Christ the Lord and will also raise us by his power. So here it is. Paul is laying out a blessing. Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. After the fall of our first father, Adam and our first mother Eve in the garden, God knew the effects that sin would have on us and that the plight of the human condition would only worsen. This sin, which means sin is the missing of the mark. Imagine a bullseye. It's the missing of the mark. And and when we sin, we're not following God's provision or his plan for our life. We're not obeying his word. This sin, missing of the mark, it brought death upon all of humankind. All humans have sinned. All humans have fallen short of the glory. But not just humankind has fallen. All of the earth began to die from that moment. Because of this death, and it wasn't just a physical death. We don't just die a physical death due to this sin. We die a spiritual death. And so because of this, he's writing to this group. And, and, and the promise comes to this is that God the Father sees our condition in the garden. Even before, not days, days later, God the Father sees the condition in the garden. As he's walking through and he asks Adam, where are you? They say, God, we're hiding because we're naked. He said, well, who told you you're naked? Who, not naked, naked, right? Who told you you're naked? And, and they, and they say, well, well, well the, the serpent, and he blames Eve, and Eve blames the serpent. But right in that moment, understanding the plight that would follow, God the Father gives a promise. A promise in the garden. A promise of an expectant Savior that he would send forth an offspring. His son who would crush both Satan, sin, and death. Here, we find Peter on the opposite side of that promise. We find Peter at the point of the promise come to pass, where the promise has been fulfilled. And he's writing, blessing God the Father because of the glorious work that Jesus Christ the Son has done on the cross and through the resurrection. And so he's writing to this church in Asia Minor. 
And he's, he's saying, let's praise the Lord because what, church? It is finished. The promise that God has given to Adam and Eve, it is finished. Sin and death is nullified under the shed blood of the cross. It is finished. Why did God do this, you might ask? Why would, why would God send forth his son? Why would God make this promise of his offspring in the garden? Why would he do it? Before I even get there, I want to tell you why he did not do it. What's the reasons he didn't do it? He didn't do it because we deserved it. God the Father didn't send forth Jesus Christ the Son because we deserved it. He didn't raise Jesus Christ the Son from the dead because we deserved it. No, 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 no. We do not deserve it. He didn't do it because we are good. He didn't do it because, just like your grandma tells you, you're a good little boy or girl. You're not. I'm here to tell you you're a filthy, wicked sinner. Not because of me, but because that's what the Scriptures say. He didn't do it because that the humans that would follow after Adam and Eve would be better. No, what we find is that the humans that follow after Adam and Eve become progressively worse, so much so that God has to send a flood. And then after the flood, they be continually get worse. With each generation, we drift further and further away from God's plan and God's provision. There is no one good. So why did he do that? Why did God do this? He did it because of his great mercy. His great mercy is the reason why he sent forth Jesus the Son and why he raised Jesus from the dead is for his great mercy. He did it completely on his own for his own good, for his own glory. We deserved nothing more than death because there is no one good, not even one. And, and when I say good, church, don't get this twisted. Don't get the word good twisted. Because in our culture and in our context, we want to say, well, I'm a good person. Who would be bold enough to admit they've said that about themselves before? I'm a good person. Well, the reality is, is that the standard that the scripture lays out is perfection. The, the Bible doesn't say, hey, be good enough. Jesus doesn't come to the world and say, hey, I've came for those who are good enough. No, he said, I came for those who are sick who need a physician. I am the good physician because the reality is, is no one is perfect apart from Christ. So I want to tell you this, in case you walked in this place, you said, I don't, I didn't know how to dress. I don't know how these people act. I want to let you know you're in good company. There's a bunch of hypocrites here. Welcome home. You're in great company in that regard. We are all fallen and when we come to know Christ, while our sin nature still lives inside of us, we are pursuant to Jesus and we have been transformed from sinner to saint, not on our work, not on our redemption, but because of him. There is no one good, not one. He did it in his great mercy. He sent forth his son to accomplish what we could not through the cross. Being sinless and perfect in every way, like the sacrificial lambs of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant. But all satisfying, Jesus is unlike the old lambs and the old things that were sacrificed, sacrificed under the Old Covenant. Jesus' blood paid the payment for our sin. He became what is known as our propitiation, absorbing the wrath of God taking on the fury of God the Father. So in his great mercy, God the Father poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ the Son until it was 
empty. Aren't you glad that God the Father's wrath has been poured out to the point it is empty? It is empty. In his great mercy, Jesus willingly took our punishment. Come back to verse 3. Come back to verse 3. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be born again. This very exchange of Jesus taking our place and open the door for us to be born again. And maybe, maybe you're not a church person. And that's okay. That's okay, you're in a safe place. And this, this, this term, to be born again, is obscure, to say the least. And, and I want to break that down, just so that you understand, and let you know you're in good company. Because the first time that this phrase was spit out in John chapter 3, Jesus is setting with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. I like to call him Nico. And he's sitting with Nico, and they're having a conversation. And he says, in order for you to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And, and Nicodemus is one of the smartest men in all of Israel. He knows the Torah inside and out, word for word. He is a brilliant mind of God's word. And he looks at Jesus, and he was like, born again? What, what does that even mean? How, I'm a grown man. How can I enter my mother's womb again? And, and Jesus says, no. In order to be born again, you must be born both of water, which is of your mother's womb, Second, of spirit, which means that the Holy Spirit comes inside of you and takes up residence in your heart and takes you to newness of life. Why does that need to happen? It's because you are dead in your trespasses. If you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord, you are spiritually dead. You are spiritually bankrupt. You have nothing in your equity account to be able to pay your ransom to get to heaven. And so, we're bankrupt. And so here it is, is that he has caused us to be born again. The spiritual rebirth is possible through submitting to Jesus as the Lord of our life, wherein a spiritual transaction takes place. Um, and this is required because we're spiritually dead. And you're like, what is this spiritual transaction? I'm going to say it, Molly. I'm going to say it. Molly told me not to say it. It's a process called double imputation. It's where you, you receive something from Christ and he takes something from you. And, and so I have a scripture there for you to reference if you want to reference it, 2 Corinthians 5.21. But there's this spiritual transaction that takes place where on the cross, Jesus took all of your sins. Say all. He didn't take a little bit of them. He didn't take the ones that you've committed prior to you accepting Christ. No, he took the ones that are past, present, and future. Past, present, and future. He, on the cross, he takes all of our sins and he bears them once and for all. But he doesn't just leave us free of our sin. No, no, no. He gives forth us his righteousness. And so on the cross, as he dies, when we accept Jesus Christ as Lord, he not only forgives us of our sin, but he gives us 
his righteousness. And not just his righteousness for that moment, but from that moment until the point that we die. From then until our death. And so I want to tell you, if you know Jesus today, if you know him as the Lord and Savior of your life, if you're walking in communion with him, and that means you're actually walking with Jesus, not not just some transactional fast food relationship, but you're walking with Jesus, you are righteous in God the Father's sight today. And so this spiritual transaction takes place, which allows us to be born again. And so there it is. That phrase, born again, is this spiritual transaction of God the Father taking your sins off of you, putting them on Jesus Christ the Son, and him taking his righteousness and putting it on you. Come back to verse 3. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to what church? A living hope. The thought that Peter's getting at here is that on the cross, hope died. On the cross, hope died. If you're a student of the New Testament, what you'll quickly see is that the the disciples of Jesus and even the parents of the disciples of Jesus had this great expectation that was unfulfilled. They had this great expectation. We see the sons of Zebedee, James and John, their mother come to Jesus and say, hey, in in your court, when you conquer, can my my boy set to your right? And he said, "You, you have no idea. Jesus responds, you have no idea what you're asking for. You don't understand what you're asking. And the reason why that they didn't understand was they were expecting Jesus in John chapter 12, when Jesus arrives to Jerusalem for the great triumphal infantry, for that to be the signification that the throne of David, which was right now seen as empty, that the messianic king, the king of Israel, would come take his throne again and would conquer the Romans and rise up the nation of Israel. They had this very nationalistic mindset. And so they they come to Jerusalem only for their king to die. And when their king dies, their hope in and of itself has died. And so in their mind on that day, they saw Jesus like every other pseudo savior that came before. That they had died, therefore their message would die. And so in their minds, hope is dead. Hope is dead. Shattered and afraid. The New Testament reveals to us that the disciples on silent Saturday, Jesus dies on a Friday. Saturday, they call it silent Saturday and resurrection Sunday. On silent Saturday, where do we find the disciples? Hiding and afraid. Because hope had died. Hope was dead. Writing to the followers of Asia Minor, Peter wants them to know this. But on Sunday, on Sunday, they encountered the risen Savior Jesus, a living hope, not a dead hope, not some nationalistic king who will only live for 50, 60 years at most, but a living hope that will conquer and reign for all time, for all of eternity. A living hope who will set you free, who will set the captive free, who will loosen the chains 
chains who will make you able to live a living hope. That's what Peter wants them to see. He's saying, hey, you're not serving a dead hope. You're not serving a false savior. You're serving a risen savior, a living hope. He doesn't want them to forget that they serve a savior who's not weak and tired. He's not weak and tired. He is not feeble and old. They serve a savior who is living and active and you can have hope in Jesus. When Jesus rose from the dead, he did so with a physical body, a new physical eternal body that was no longer subject to weakness, aging, decay. For he had put on, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, the imperishable. He had put on immortality. That he had became the perfect summation of himself. Consequently, all of us who look to Jesus as the Lord of our life will be born again just like him, who will be raised again with a new body just like him. He is the foreshadow of what is to come in you and I if we trust in him as Lord. Meaning through his death and resurrection, Christ has earned for us a new resurrection after this life. Additionally, because of this living hope found in the resurrection, while we are still here on earth, the resurrection of Jesus gives us power to overcome our addictions, power to overcome our proclivities of sin, power to become new in Christ, to let the old man die and to become something new for us to be able to overcome because it's a living and active hope. Furthermore, Jesus' resurrection ensures our right standing before God the Father. As Romans 4.25 says, Jesus was raised for our justification. He was raised for our justification. When God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, he was affirming the work of the Son on the cross. He was saying, it is finished. God the Father was. He was saying, my wrath and my fury, my judgment is gone. It is finished in Christ Jesus. And so as we come to verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. I want to read you a quote from Tim Keller. We need a living hope to get through life and endure suffering. A living hope enables us to have both sorrow and joy. Our living hope is an inheritance achieved for us by Christ. The living hope found in Jesus is not like the hope of this world that grows stale, tired, or weak, and ultimately leaves us wanting when when our expectations are left unmet. Rather, our inheritance, because of this living hope, can never perish, spoil, or fade. Because our hope is grounded in a promise that has already came to pass. Did you, did you check that? Our hope is not in a promise that might be fulfilled. Our hope has already came to pass. It is already fulfilled. Hope tied to present or wished circumstances is fragile and temporary. Such hope can quickly turn to despair when circumstances change. 
Jesus offers a perfect and living hope that transcends our present circumstances. Therefore, our hope is not tied to our circumstances, but to Jesus himself. This hope, Jesus, is enduring. It is unshakable, even in the midst of uncertain and difficult circumstances. It provides comfort, strength, and perspective in all of life's challenges. Ultimately, this hope points us to the eternal future that we will enjoy in heaven with Christ Jesus. The inheritance here is not to be understood as an inheritance that we see in the Old Testament, such as land and possessions, but it is an eternal life in heaven with God. And so verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. As believers, we are being guarded by God's power through faith. You are eternally secure in your salvation if you trust Jesus Christ as Lord. If he is the center of your life, you are guarded by God himself, the Holy Spirit. He stands before you, protecting you. He is our protector and our guide. He is faithful to keep us until the day of salvation is revealed. We can trust in his promises and rely on his strength to carry us through every trial and challenge. Why? Because he is a living, true hope. It is not determined by a man's being, as in Greek thought. Nor is it a product of our imagination. It's not based on a man at all. It's not based on his past achievements or his potential for the future. A living hope is based on Jesus Christ himself. Here in the scriptures, we find the gospel of hope in an empty tomb. This gospel of hope runs antithetical to the gospel of self-fulfillment, which is also recently described is expressive individualism, which seems to be the dominant religion of Western culture today. The modern Western invention is a self-sufficient human. It has no final goals beyond human flourishing and no allegiance to anything outside of our immediate happiness. This is a unique characteristic of only our society, of only our current time period in all of history. This good life has been radically redefined according to the benefit of the individual. In this religion, our only duty today is to pursue happiness, and our only sin is self-betrayal. If we're being honest, our culture is ripe with the gospel of self-fulfillment. I can do bad all by myself. Right? Treat yourself. Right? I mean, mean, we, we say these phrases to each other all the time. This self-fulfillment project has sent millions in the West on a quest to find themselves in their own happiness. 
But the problem is, this quest has ultimately led to a generation passing adult milestone after milestone without the all-encompassing fulfillment that they expected. They may achieve a moment of satisfaction, but quickly, just as quickly as they find that moment of fulfillment, it flees and fades away. They ultimately conclude fulfillment is unattainable in this life. Ultimately, they're left broken, tired, empty, and helpless. They conclude, I I don't know how to fix my problem. I I don't know how to deal with the circumstances that that I have. My kids are bad. My wife or my husband, they drive me crazy. This gospel of self-fulfillment is a worldly hope. It's a dead and fragile hope, likened to a house of cards. Worldly hope says this, let's cross our fingers, try our best, and hope for the best. I'm a millennial. And it breaks my heart, it pains my heart to see millennials who I, who I work with, who I'm around, and, and Gen Z as, they, as they're coming into the workplace right now, and, and they're quickly finding out that life is not what they imagined it to be, that they get to work and they have to do a hard day's work and they go, I'm not fulfilled here. I'm not fulfilled here. I I can't do this. I got to find something to bring myself purpose. And they go do this thing that they try to find themselves purpose and fulfillment in. And they ultimately still go, I'm not happy. I'm not fulfilled. I don't have joy. I'm miserable. This life is mundane. And if you don't believe it, look at the statistics. The statistics of suicide rate continues to go. Look at the statistics. The the statistics of depression and anxiety medicine continues to do this. Why? Because we have put our hope in fulfilling ourselves with our happiness, with an emotion that is fleeting. It is fleeting. It is a house of cards. I want to tell you, you don't have to cross your fingers. Try your best. Because a heavenly hope, a biblical hope, a living hope is different. That hope says, in Christ Jesus, I can have joy. In Christ Jesus, I can have fulfillment, not because of what I've done, but because of what he's done. I can love people despite how ridiculous they are. I can love them even when I want to throat punch them. That's the reality of the gospel. Is that in Christ Jesus, we have a heavenly, biblical, living hope. And it's not based on wishful thinking, but it is a confident expectation. I want you to hear this. and I want you to ponder this as, as you think through it this week. A dead hope, the gospel of self-fulfillment disappoints. But a living hope, always delivers.
Don't put your hope in your job. Don't put your hope in your kids. Please don't put your hope in your kids. Don't put your hope in your spouse or the spouse that you hope to have. Because they will pass from this life. Because they will let you down. Just like the wharf rats in 1950. You don't have to keep sinking into your hopelessness and despair. Where individuals have hope, they have higher levels of perseverance. They will keep fighting when they sense a rescue. When they don't have hope, they just give up. Maybe this morning you feel like you're in the rat race, just treading water, and it feels like you're you're about to go down. You're about to succumb to life's problems. It is beating you up. You feel pushed down. You're oppressed on every side. Jesus has more for you than just treading water. Jesus has more for you than just treading water. He is a living hope. He has already put the life raft into the water via the cross. Through him, you can have a living hope. You can bring your tired, your empty, hopeless situation to him. He is the author and architect of hope. Today, church, the tomb is empty So bring your hopeless situation to him. The tomb is empty so you don't have to be.